Hello, and welcome back to Headset, the Oberlin Theatre Department's podcast. Today, we have the pleasure of talking to Professor Kari Barclay, who recently joined the theatre department as a visiting assistant professor of theatre. Professor Barclay has done extensive work in theatre, including writing several original pieces and teaching intimacy direction. And thank you so much, Professor Barclay, for joining us. I'm so glad to be here. Thanks for having me. So if you don't mind, I want to start by asking what brought you to Oberlin. I know that that might be kind of a complicated question, but how do we have the pleasure of you joining us? I had sort of always known Oberlin as a great school for the arts. Just the conservatory has an international reputation. And as I was finishing up my graduate education, looking for places to teach, I saw the post at Oberlin, was really excited about it. I also knew that as a professor who loves teaching on queer and trans performance, that Oberlin has such a strong LGBT plus community in the student body and that that would align greatly with my teaching interests. I also know that I also do performance work around asexuality and Oberlin has a fantastic student organization for asexual and aromantic students. Just kind of a lot of fits with research interests. The department also had a really strong interest in advancing intimacy directing as a field, being an area of performance around staging scenes of romance and sexuality with an eye towards consent and trauma-informed approaches. And so folks in the department were very eager to advance this as an area of expertise. And it's just such a gift to be able to do this work, advancing what I love. And the department was so receptive to that. And so to go off what brought you to Oberlin, what is your position at Oberlin? What kind of stuff are you going to be teaching? So my formal title is a visiting assistant professor of theater. I think when the job was originally posted, it was a visiting professor of theater history, theater making, and performance studies. So kind of a really uh, sort of broad swath of interests. And that kind of matches how I see myself as an educator. I did my graduate training at Stanford University, which has the model in theater and performance studies of scholar artists, folks who love theory, who love history but also have a foot in making art and have a real interest in making art. And so something I love about this position is it does really work across both theory and practice. So my different areas of teaching that I'm doing this year are the theater history curriculum, teaching uh, foundations of theater and then global theater histories. And with those, a lot of what I'm doing is actually trying to expand our definition of what theater is to encompass a wide variety of performances, dance theater, dance drama, oral history and oral storytelling traditions so that it's not just your kind of European American theater with a capital T, right? It's thinking about all of the performance traditions. So trying to do that within the theater history sequence and then the other work Work that I do is work that combines theory and practice. So I'm teaching a course on consent and sexuality in theater that is centering around intimacy directing and looking at contemporary plays that address sexuality and histories of sexual violence. I'm teaching a course in the spring on queer and trans performance, in which we'll be studying performance or a play for every letter of the LGBTQIA acronym. And then as well in the spring, teaching a course on playwriting. So another course that has a practical bent to it. You clearly do work pretty much across the board, but to focus on intimacy direction for a moment, I think that we have talked a little bit before about intimacy direction on the podcast, and I actually, I know that that has come up in several plays that have gone on in Oberlin while I've been here, but would you mind talking a little bit about what that is? Because I'm not sure that even people within the theater world have entirely heard of intimacy direction. Sure, absolutely. And it's very understandable for folks not to know. I think intimacy directing only really gained visibility 
since 2016, and in particular in the wake of the Me Too movement. So it is something that we're kind of building as we make it happen. So it's a lot of folks are trying to understand what it means. But the way I see intimacy directing is a conscientious approach to how we stage sexually and sensually charged scenes in performance. And so historically, when folks have been staging kisses, nudity, scenes of simulated sex acts, it's been work that has been designated just to the performer. Can you just have a sense of chemistry with your scene partner right now? Or can you go to another room and figure out this stage kiss and come back and show us what you got? And that's a really alienating experience for a performer, being told to use your own history, to use your own attraction, to stage scenes that really should have artistic approaches. So what intimacy directors do in theater and intimacy coordinators in television and film, we use those two different labels for the different media. What those artists do is they come up with specific choreographies for intimate moments within plays. So how can, instead of saying, can you all make out? Staying in said, okay, so you're going to close distance between your lips on a five count. You'll do a kiss itself that lasts for two seconds. And I want a reaction that incorporates a sigh and a feeling that one character enjoyed it and one character did not, right? So it's a lot more specificity involved. And then once you set that choreography, it being what the performer uses for the duration, unless there's something radical that changes, like all of a sudden you're in mass because of COVID. <laughs> so really taking a conscious approach. The other work that intimacy directors and coordinators do is really considering the mental health of the performer and developing approaches that help performers do this work sustainably. So one of the problems with relying on performers' own senses of their romantic or sexual identity is that connection between performers can bleed off stage. So a lot of what we do as intimacy directors as we work to build divides between when you're in performance mode and when you're in your everyday life. So one of those rituals we do is tapping in and tapping out, which is literally performers just giving a high five in the air that makes a sound. And through that sound is able to trigger them in terms of, okay, now I'm entering a character and then they do a high five at the end. Oh, I'm exiting. And that sonic shift just actually helping people get out of the mode that they've been in. Other work that we do is around something called de-rolling, in which after a performance, actors state the differences and similarities between themselves and their characters so that they can recognize that, oh, yes, the mode that I was inhabiting as a performer is distinct from how I am in daily life. And as I always emphasize, that's important, not just for intimacy, but a whole variety of theatrical contexts. When one acts in a scene of any sort of structural violence or characters responding to hate speech, any sort of inequality that's dramatized on stage, how can you protect performers' mental health by letting people know, okay, this is a performance. Even if those things do exist in the world off stage, you're going to do the things that you need to take care of yourself and get yourself out of that mode of some of this challenging material. It's, it's so interesting. There are just so many facets to that. I mean, it, there's the negotiation of who you are on stage versus off stage, And then I imagine that all of this, you know, the choreography would help both with the actor's confidence and understanding what's expected of them, and also the ability to negotiate consent with tapping in and out, which is something that when you think about like traditional theater practices around like 
can you just make out with this person? It's it's really not very consent-based. So it's nice to know that it's moving in that direction. And then additionally, I imagine that that really makes it so much easier for actors to deal with interpersonal relationships just because negotiating emotions with a scene partner, when a scene is so charged, even outside of a romantic sense, any kind of power dynamic, whether it's love, whether it's hate, whether it's intimate, I imagine that being able to not only divorce yourself from the character that you're playing, but also be able to recognize that as like a separate mode of being kind of divorced from who you are as a person off the stages uh, is incredibly helpful with that. Absolutely. And I mean, that's certainly true, especially in undergraduate environments, right? In a small school in which a lot of people know each other. And when when you're often acting with friends, how do you build that divide? And then the other level of power and kind of that close relationship is how do you think about the relationship between faculty directors and student performers, which when you're being graded by the person who's directing your work, right? It's a kind of dynamic that it can feel really hard to say no. And so the intimacy director, intimacy coordinator is just another person in the room who's able to be an advocate for the performer, another voice who you can kind of say what you need to say to them without feeling like it's going to affect how a mentor or how a role model sort of sees me, right? The intimacy director can be sort of an arbiter or an advocate who's able to take away some of those high stakes from the professor-student relationship and from students' relationships to each other. I imagine it also, the role of an intimacy director makes it easier. And I'm thinking more of like the arrow ace community and people who identify like that, who don't necessarily know what romance feels like or what any of those things feel like to be able to just be like, oh, we'll go make out. They're like, what am I supposed to be like? How, what? Absolutely. And just jumping in on that, a lot of what drew me to this work is somebody who's on the asexual spectrum myself. And so when I was growing up making performance as a young actor, constantly being told, well, I'm not feeling the chemistry here. Can you just feel more attracted to your scene partner? And that is a very unhelpful direction. (laughs) You cannot tell somebody to feel chemistry. You can instead provide people the ingredients and the choreographic tools for them to tell a story of intimacy. And I find that so empowering is that I can make scene work accessible to those on the asexual and aromantic spectrums if people are interested in doing this type of work, acting in scenes of intimacy. And I'd say as well that Yes, asexuality and being aromantic are on spectrums, but I think one can also describe a lot of sexuality and romance in general as not operating kind of spontaneously as people think that for a lot of people, desire can follow after choreography. And so part of the point of intimacy directing, something that sort of people disagree with, or that's a little bit of a challenge is that sometimes acting in choreography can actually make people have real feelings. And the question is, do we want those in the rehearsal room or do we want it to be totally separate? And I always say, let's, we can welcome desire. You know, if something does conjure a a spirit of feeling attracted to a character in a moment, feeling kind of animated by what a script brings out in you, great, as long as we can put a container on it, as long as we can tap in and tap out and set those professional boundaries where we need to set them. Speaking about asexuality on stage, I know that you wrote an original piece called Can I Hold You, which was the first full-length piece about asexuality performed in the U.S., which is really quite the achievement. Can you talk a little bit about what that was like and what that process was like? I know that you said that you were inspired as a person who was on the ace spectrum, but what was it like crafting a narrative around that? People call asexuality the invisible orientation for a reason, and that there's very little representation out there culturally But also asexuality is something that is hard to dramatize. A lot of times in popular culture or popular perceptions of it, it's seen as a lack 
a lack of attraction. So how do you dramatize something that's perceived as a lack? And I started writing Can I Hold You because I wanted to address that gap in artistic representation. And so to develop this piece, I actually interviewed people on the asexual and aromantic spectrums in the Bay Area where I was living at the time. And I had written very few plays before, did not very much consider myself a playwright, but was like, there's nothing out there and I just need to, I need to make some work that's engaging with this material. And so when I heard from folks was an interest in expressing the different desires that asexuals and aromantic folks do have in the world. And so not just viewing asexuality or aromanticism as lack, but actually as a presence. And so in that similar spirit, I created what I call platonic comedy. So it's half romantic, half platonic, that's simultaneously a love story of somebody who's on the asexual spectrum looking for romance, dating in the bizarre world of Tinder, I'm sort of online dating that's often hypersexual, but also this person's relationship with her roommate, who is in a lot of ways a friend a platonic partner, somebody who's really meaningful to them on a friend level and kind of encountering some of the difficulties of, well, I want to be in this romantic relationship, but this romantic relationship is taking up all my time. How can I value a platonic intimacy, a friend intimacy in the same way that I would value a romantic intimacy? So it's kind of, I like taking the audience on that journey of trying to figure out who to root for. Do I view these two relationships in conflict with each other? Do I root for one of them to succeed and the other to fail? Can they manage to get both at the same time? So rather than asexuality and aromanticism being a lack of desire, being characterized by an excess of desire. We have so many desires for connections. They just aren't always sexual or they aren't just always romantic. So staging both of those at the same time. And so I did this piece at Stanford University and then toured it up to San Francisco where we had this beautiful sold out run full of asexual people and aromantic people snapping in the audience. People were just so grateful to see the identities represented. People came and saw the show three times because they really loved having that representation. And then people who'd never heard of asexuality in their life saw the show, just kind of, they had friends in it. They just happened to be in the area. And I would have people come up to me after the show being like, wait, I think that's who I am. I think that's part of my experience. And so knowing that this play in addressing that representational gap could help people put words to what they've been feeling and help them discover a community that might be there to support them, um, even as they don't experience sexual or romantic attraction normatively. To talk about queer representation more generally in theater, because I know that that is also something that is in your wheelhouse and something that you do teach a lot. First of all, even though it may seem obvious, why to you does it feel like queer representation in theater is important? And kind of how did you become acquainted with that and decide that that was something that you were interested in? Uh, first off, as somebody who is queer identified, both in my asexuality, I think asexuality is inherently queer, but I also identify as being homoromantic or queer romantic, being romantically attracted to people of the same gender or folks who are non-binary. From that perspective, I didn't have a lot of artwork growing up that depicted folks with identities like mine. And so there was a need to sort of fill representational gaps to be able to see folks like me represented. But also, I think more broadly, I just think queerness is beautiful. <laughs> Queerness and transness are like splendid. A lot of my artwork is engaging with ideas of witchcraft or magic because I generally think queer and trans people are like the best. I, th I think we 
are able to do a lot of stuff that heals the world, that like changes the world. And for me, queer and trans aren't just static identities, but active processes of trying to disrupt norms and trying to reshape the world around us. And so I think all my performance, whether it addresses identity specifically, is attempting to make queer and trans magic. So one of the plays that I'm doing that on right now is called Stonewall In which is a take on non-binary and queer identities within the rural South. And so they're a group of queer witches that are gathering together to cast a spell to protect them from the forces of bigotry and hate in small town Virginia. As they call on their ancestors, though, they do not realize that some of their ancestors are actually the Confederate generals from the Civil War. So they accidentally animate a Confederate monument of Stonewall Jackson to come back to life and confront the forces of whiteness within queer communities, which is something I'm really interested in exploring. How do queer and trans identities relate to the workings of race? Is race itself a queer construction that just makes everything very strange and weird? How is race formative of heterosexual identity? right? How is the construction of heterosexuality tied to the construction of whiteness? And so with this piece, we have not only the Confederate General Stonewall Jackson brought together as a statue, we have the participants in the Stonewall riots in New York called upon to also protect folks. So it's a dialogue between Stonewall Jackson and the Stonewall riots and the birth of queer liberation when queer and trans folks of color fought against the police. So uh, a really dynamic piece there, a lot of romantic comedy set amidst this whole context. One of the characters coming out as non-binary throughout the course of the play. A lot going on, but it's been really delightful to work on so far. And and it's going to open at Richmond Triangle Players, a queer theater in Virginia, where it's set in February of 2022. Wow, that's amazing. I would love to try to get myself to Virginia to see that. I think that it's probably not very likely, but... Hopefully I can stage a reading on campus. I really want people at Oberlin to be able to engage with it. I think you would probably fill a fairly large space if you did that. Clearly, you've been doing a lot of research and a lot of writing about both the issues of intimacy and queerness and race and how they all intertwine, but you're also teaching these things, which is a whole different can of worms. How do you think it's important to go about teaching, especially with keeping in mind that as a professor, you do hold a position of power, which I know is something that you've talked about. How do you go about talking about intimacy in front of a class and about queerness and race? My whole perspective on teaching is how can I build every class such that that class can only happen with the people who are in that room. So acknowledging that students themselves bring tremendous perspectives to this work. And so just in the way that I've been teaching my theater history courses so far, it's very much we're going to look at a play, we're going to look at a video, break out into groups of five and talk about it with your neighbor about what do you think about the representation of Native artists in American theater in the context of this specific play. And so actually getting folks to offer their own perspectives on the work, recognizing that even though I'm authority in some rights and I have a lot of training, a lot of historical perspective to offer folks, knowing that so too do my students. 
And so from that perspective, a lot of the work I do is very participatory. We just today in my course on consent and sexuality in theater, students had a chance to write their own scenes of intimacy, incorporating some of the elements that we'd studied about choreography in terms of how they wrote a script. And so when you give people a chance to kind of articulate their own concerns of what they're worried about or what they're thinking about when they consider intimacy and when they consider sexuality more broadly, I think that kind of paves the way for sort of more interesting conversations and paves the way for me to be learning alongside students. And that's something that I always emphasize is that I'm a co-learner along with my students. I will correct you if I think you're getting history wrong, or if I think you need pushback against what you're saying, because my goal is to get people to think further. And I do have a really rigorous graduate training, but at the same time, understanding that my students can also inform me and really they have, I mean, I'm writing a book right now on intimacy directing and the conversations that I have in my course on consent and sexuality in theater are so rich in terms of how I view some of the plays and analyzing some of the practices that I'm exploring in my book. You just mentioned that you're writing a book. Can you tell us a bit what that's about, what the process has been there? So with intimacy directing, I started studying it at this point three or four years ago, studying with several of the leading organizations, a theatrical intimacy education, and another intimacy directors and coordinators. And doing this work, I wanted to become a more ethical theater maker. And then I just found it really fascinating and said, wow, this is a really new field. And I'm really interested in these practices. But a field is developing so fast. I'm not sure it knows exactly what it's doing or why it's doing what it's doing. So I wanted to to kind of backtrack and think, okay, what are the goals of intimacy directing and how did it get to blossom so enormously as it has today? And so I analyze in this book, intimacy directing as a product of two norms that are colliding in the 21st century. The first is sexual liberalism, which uses the law as an approach to address sexual violence. Sexual liberalism is what gives us the language of consent and the language of individual choice when we describe theater, when we describe sex, when we describe all sorts of intimacy. And then the second force that I examine is sex positivity, which I think in the 21st century, as we're seeing a lot more sex on television, now that we have Netflix, now that we have streaming technology, now that pornography is widely accessible on the internet, we live in a very sex-saturated culture that can create a lot of pressures on individuals to perform their desires or to participate in sex as a way of feeling empowered or at home in their bodies. And so I feel like intimacy directing is kind of putting these two in conversation. It's allowing people to have conversations around consent, but also exploring and sometimes pushing back on the pressures for people to generate desire or people to always be sexual beings. It says, how can we decenter desire and recenter choreography? And so I think these two goals of liberalism, individual choice, but then the social pressures around sexuality, these two things often and conflict. And I don't think intimacy directors are talking about that. So essentially what I do is I take those two norms and I propose a solution of where intimacy directing should go, which is what I describe as a sexual comment. I suggest that in the 20th century, especially with method acting, this process of staging intimacy became reduced to a process of expressing individual desire. Actors have to express their chemistry. They have to be sexually liberated all the time. Whereas what we're doing in the 21st century with intimacy directing is focusing on what is she how do we establish common choreographic vocabularies? How do we build something that performers can understand together rather than putting it on individual performers to generate their own work? So in that sense, it's a commons. In other words, a shared space. 
And my goal really with thinking through intimacy directing as a shared space as well is to address the unequal legacies of how race, ability, age, and sexual orientation show up in scenes of intimacy. One of the problems with consent discourse is consent often emerged from very white legal traditions and hasn't taken into account folks of color who've been excluded from using the law as recourse for sexual violence. So how can we actually address the role of sexual stereotypes? How can we speak about autonomy and access within intimacy directing in a way that is inclusive and doesn't just reinforce whiteness and the individuality of consent. And so this model of a commons, of a shared space, is really something that's trying to undo the forces of racialization and colonialism as they've shaped inequity within theater, television, and film. Well, thank you so much, Professor Barclay, for joining us. We really appreciate having you on the podcast. Sure. Thank you so much for having this conversation. Thank you so much to Professor Barclay for being on the podcast today. It was truly an interesting discussion, and I can't wait to learn more in the classes that I'll be taking with Professor Barclay in the spring. Next semester, Professor Barclay will be teaching queer and trans performance, global theater histories, and a playwriting workshop. There are currently just a few more seats up for grabs in each, so definitely sign up right away. Thank you all for listening to this episode of Headset, and we'll see you all next time.